Welcome to the Resilient Mind Podcast. We strive to empower people all over the world with information so they can strengthen their mind and thrive during difficult times. If you would like to contribute to our mission, you can subscribe or support through the link in the show notes. In this episode, you will be listening to The Master Key System with Charles Honnell. Enjoy. In this part, you may learn to fashion the tools by which you may build for yourself any condition you desire. If you wish to change conditions, you must change yourself. Your whims, your wishes, your fancies, your ambitions may be thwarted at every step, but your inmost thoughts will find expression, just as certainly as the plant springs from seed. Suppose then we desire to change conditions. How are we to bring about this? The reply is simple, by the law of growth. Cause and effect are as absolute and undeviating in the hidden realm of thought as in the world of material things. Hold in mind the condition desired. Affirm it as an already existing fact. This indicates the value of a powerful affirmation. By constant repetition, it becomes a part of ourselves. We are actually changing ourselves. We're making ourselves what we want to be. Character is not a thing of chance, but it is the result of continued effort. If you are timid, vacillating, self-conscious, or if you are over-anxious or harassed by thoughts of fear or impending danger, Remember that it is axiomatic that the two things cannot exist in the same place at the same time. Exactly the same thing is true in the mental and spiritual world, so that your remedy is plainly to substitute thoughts of courage, power, and self-reliance, as well as confidence, for those of fear, lack, and limitation. The easiest and most natural way to do this is to select an affirmation which seems to fit your particular case. The positive thought will destroy the negative as certainly as light destroys darkness, and the results will be just as effectual. Act is the blossom of thought, and conditions are the result of action, so that you constantly have in your possession the tools by which you will certainly and inevitably make or unmake yourself, and joy or suffering will be the reward. Part 9. There are only three things which can possibly be desired in the world without, and each of them can be found in the world within. The secret of finding them is simply to apply the proper mechanism of attachment to the omnipotent power to which each individual has access. The three things which all mankind desires and which are necessary for his highest expression and complete development are health, wealth, and love. All will admit that health is absolutely essential, so no one can be happy if the physical body is in pain. All will not so readily admit that wealth is necessary, but all must admit that a sufficient supply at least is necessary, and what would be considered sufficient for one would be considered absolute and painful lack for another, and as nature provides, not only enough but abundantly, wastefully, lavishly, we realize that any lack or limitation is only the limitation. All will probably admit that love is the third, or maybe some will say the first, essential, necessary to the happiness of mankind. At any rate, those who possess all three, health, wealth, and love, find nothing else which can be added to their cup of happiness. We have found that the universal substance is all health, all substance, and all love, and that the mechanism of attachment whereby we can consciously connect with this infinite supply is in our method of thinking. To think correctly is therefore to enter into the secret place of the Most High. Well, what shall we think? If we know this, we shall have found the proper mechanism of attachment which will relate to us. Whatsoever things we desire... This mechanism may seem very simple when I give it to you, but read on. You will find that it is in reality the master key, the Aladdin's lamp, if you please. 
you'll find that it's the foundation, the imperative condition, the absolute law of well-doing, which means well-being. To think correctly and accurately, we must know the truth. The truth, then, is the underlying principle in every business or social relation. It's a condition precedent to every right action. To know the truth, to be sure, to be confident, affords a satisfaction beside which no other is at all comparable. It is only the solid ground in a world of doubt, conflict, and danger. To know the truth is to be in harmony with the infinite and omnipotent power. To know the truth is, therefore, to connect yourself with a power which is irresistible and which will sweep away every kind of discord, in harmony, doubt, or error of any kind, because the truth is mighty and it will prevail. The humblest intellect can readily foretell the result of any action when he knows that it is based on truth. But the mightiest intellect, the most profound and penetrating mind, loses its way hopelessly and can form no conception of the results which may ensue when his hopes are based on a premise which he knows to be false. Every action which is not in harmony with truth, whether through ignorance or design, will result in discord and eventual loss in proportion to its extent and character. How then are we to know the truth in order to attach this mechanism which will relate us to the infinite? Uh, we can make no mistake about this if we realize the truth is the vital principle of the universal mind and is omnipresent. For instance, if you require health, a realization of the fact that the I in you is spiritual and that all spirit is one, that wherever a part is the whole must be, will bring about a condition of health. Because every cell in the body must manifest the truth as you see it. If you see sickness, they will manifest sickness. If you see perfection, they must manifest perfection. The affirmation that I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy will bring about harmonious conditions. The reason for this is because the affirmation is in strict accordance with the truth. And when truth appears, every form of error or discord must necessarily disappear. Now you found that the I is spiritual. It must be necessarily then always be no less than perfect. The affirmation, I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy, is therefore an exact scientific statement. Thought is a spiritual activity and spirit is creative. Therefore, the result of holding this thought in mind must necessarily bring about conditions in harmony with the thought. If you require wealth, a realization of the fact that the I in you is one with the universal mind, which is all substance and is omnipotent, will assist you in bringing into operation the law of attraction, which will bring you into vibration with those forces which make for success and bring about conditions of power and affluence in direct proportion with the character and purpose of your affirmation. Visualization is the mechanism of the attachment which you require. Visualization is a very different process from seeing. Seeing is physical, and it's therefore related to the objective world, the world without. But visualization is a product of the imagination, and is therefore a product of the subjective mind, the world within. It is therefore possessing vitality, and it will grow. The thing visualized will manifest itself in form. The mechanism is perfect. It was created by the master architect, who doeth all things well. But unfortunately, sometimes the operator is inexperienced or inefficient, but practice and determination will overcome this deficit. If you require love, try to realize that the only way to get love is by giving it, that the more you give, the more you'll get, and the only way in which you can give it is to fill yourself with it until you become a magnet. The method was explained in another lesson.
He who has learned to bring the greatest spiritual truth into touch with the so-called lesser things of life has discovered the secret of the solution of his problem. One is always quickened, made more thoughtful, by his nearness of approach to great ideas, great events, great natural objects, and great men. Lincoln is said to have begotten in all who came near him the feeling awakened when one approaches a mountain, and this sense asserts itself most keenly when one comes to realize that he has laid hold upon things that are eternal, the power of truth. It is sometimes an inspiration to hear from someone who has actually put these principles to the test, someone who has demonstrated them in their own life. A letter from Frederick Andrews offers the following insight. I was about 13 years old when Dr. T.W. Marcy, since passed over, said to my mother, There is no possible chance, Mrs. Andrews, I lost my little boy the same way, after doing everything for him that it was possible to do. I've made a special study of these cases, and I know there is no possible chance for him to get well. She turned to him and said, Doctor, what would you do if he were your boy? And he answered, I would fight, fight as long as there's a breath of life to fight for. That was the beginning of a long, drawn-out battle with many ups and downs, the doctors all agreeing that there was no chance for a cure, though they encouraged and cheered us the best they could. But at last the victory came, and I've grown from a little crooked, twisted cripple going about on my hands and knees to a strong, straight, well-formed man. Now, I know you want the formula, and I'll give it to you as briefly and quickly as I can. I build up an affirmation for myself, taking the qualities I most needed and affirming for myself over and over. I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy. I kept up this affirmation always the same, never varying until I could wake up in the night and find myself repeating, I am whole, perfect, strong, powerful, loving, harmonious, and happy. It was the last thing on my lips at night and the first thing in the morning. Not only did I affirm it for myself, but I affirmed it for others that I knew needed it. I want to emphasize this point. Whatever you desire for yourself, affirm it for others, and it will help you both. We reap what we sow. If we send out thoughts of love and health, they return to us like bread cast upon the waters. But if we send out thoughts of fear, worry, jealousy, anger, hate, etc., we're going to reap the results in our own lives. It used to be said that man is completely built over every seven years. But some scientists now declare that we build ourselves over entirely every 11 months, so we are really only 11 months old. If we build the defects back into our body year after year, we have no one to blame but ourselves. So man is the sum total of his own thoughts. So the question is, how are we going to entertain only the good thoughts and reject the evil ones? At first we can't keep the evil thoughts from coming, but we can keep from entertaining them. The only way to do this is to forget them, which means get something for them. This is where the ready-made affirmation comes into play. When a thought of anger, jealousy, fear, or worry creeps in, just start your affirmation going. The way to fight darkness is with light. The way to fight cold is with heat. The way to overcome evil is with good. For myself, I never could find any help in denials. Affirm the good and the bad will vanish. Signed, Frederick Elias Andrews. If there's anything you require, it will be well for you to make use of this affirmation. It cannot be improved upon. Use it just as it is. Take it into the silence with you until it sinks into your subconsciousness. That way you can use it anywhere, in your car, in the office, at home. This is the advantage of spiritual methods. They are always available. Spirit is omnipresent, ever ready, and all that is required is a proper recognition of its omnipotence and a willingness or desire to become the recipient of its beneficent efforts. If our predominant mental attitude is one of power, courage, 
kindliness, and sympathy, we shall find that our environment will reject conditions in correspondence with these thoughts. If it is weak, critical, envious, and destructive, we shall find our environment reflecting conditions corresponding to these thoughts. Thoughts are causes and conditions are effects. Herein is the explanation of the origin of both good and evil. Thought is creative and will automatically correlate with its object. This is a cosmological law, a universal law. The law of attraction, the law of cause and effect, the recognition and application of this law will determine both beginning and end. It is by the law by which in all ages and in all times the people were led to believe in the power of prayer. As thy faith is, so be it unto thee. It's simply another shorter and better way of stating it. So this week visualize a plant. Take a flower, the one you most admire. Bring it from the unseen into the seen. Plant the tiny seed, water it, care for it. Place it where it will get the direct rays of the morning sun. See the seed burst. It is now a living thing. Something which is alive and beginning to search for the means of substance. See the roots penetrating the earth. Watch them shoot out in all directions. And remember that they are living cells, dividing and subdividing, and that they will soon number millions, that each cell is intelligent, that it knows what it wants and knows how to get it. See the stem shoot forward and upward. Watch it burst through the surface of the earth. See it divide and form branches. See how perfect and symmetrical each branch is formed. See the leaves begin to form, and then the tiny stems, each one holding aloft a bud. And as you watch, you see the bud begin to unfold, and your favorite flower comes to view. And now, if you will concentrate intently, you'll become conscious of a fragrance. It's the fragrance of the flower as the breeze gently sways the beautiful creation which you have just visualized. When you are enabled to make your decision and vision clear and complete, you'll be enabled to enter into the spirit of a thing. It will become very real to you. You will be learning to concentrate, and the process is the same whether you're concentrating on health, a favorite flower, an ideal, a complicated business proposition, or any other problem of life. And remember, every success has been accomplished by persistent concentration upon the object in view. If you get a thorough understanding, or the thought contained in Part 10, you will have learned that nothing happens without a definite cause. You will be enabled to formulate your plans in accordance with exact knowledge. You will then know how to control any situation by bringing adequate causes into play. When you win, as you will, you will know exactly why. The ordinary man who has no definite knowledge of cause and effect is governed by his feelings or emotions. He thinks chiefly to justify his action. If he fails as a businessman, he says that luck is against him. If he dislikes music, he says that music is an expensive luxury. If he is a poor office man, he says that he could succeed better at some outdoor work. Or if he lacks friends, he says his individuality is too fine to be appreciated. He never thinks his problem through to the end. In short, he does not know that every effect is the result of a certain definite cause, but he seeks to console himself with explanations and excuses. He thinks only in self-defense. On the contrary, the man who understands that there is no effect without an adequate cause thinks impersonally. He gets down to bedrock facts regardless of consequences. He is free to follow the trail of truth wherever it may lead. He sees the issue clear to the end, and he meets the requirements fully and fairly, and the result is that the world gives him all that it has to give in friendship, honor, love, and approval. Part 10. Abundance is a natural law of the universe. 
The evidence of this law is conclusive. We see it on every hand. Everywhere nature is lavish, wasteful, extravagant. Nowhere is economy observed in any created thing. Profusion is manifested in everything. The millions and millions of trees and flowers and plants and animals and the vast scheme of reproduction, where the process of creating and recreating is forever going on, all indicates the lavishness with which nature has made provision for man. That there is an abundance for everyone is evident, but that many fail to participate in this abundance is also evident. They have not yet come into a realization of the universality of all substance, and that mind is the active principle whereby we are related to the things we desire. All wealth is the offspring of power. Possessions are of value only as they confer power. Events are significant only as they affect power. All things represent certain forms and degrees of power. Knowledge of cause and effect as shown by the laws governing electricity, chemical affinity, and gravitation enables man to plan courageously and execute fearlessly. These laws are called natural laws because they govern in the physical world, but all power is not physical power. There is also mental power and there is moral and spiritual power. Spiritual power is superior because it exists on a higher plane. It has enabled man to discover the law by which these wonderful forces of nature could be harnessed and made to do the work of hundreds and thousands of men. It has enabled man to discover laws whereby time and space have been annihilated and the law of gravitation to be overcome. The operation of this law is dependent upon every spiritual contact. As Henry Drummond well says, in the physical world as we know it, there exists the organic and the inorganic. The ignorance of the mineral world is absolutely cut off from the plant or animal world. The passage is hermetically sealed. These barriers have never yet been crossed. No change of substance, no modification of environment, no chemistry, no electricity, no form of energy, no evolution of any kind can ever endow a single atom of the mineral world with the attribute of life. Only by the bending down into this dead world of some living form can those dead atoms be gifted with the properties of vitality. Without this contact with life, they remain fixed in the inorganic sphere forever. Huxley goes on to say that the doctrine of biogenesis, or life only from life, is victorious all along the line. And Tyndall is compelled to say, I affirm that no shred of trustworthy evidence exists to prove that life in our day has ever appeared independent of antecedent life. Physical laws may explain the inorganic. Biology explains and accounts for the development of the organic, but of the point of contact science is silent. A similar passage exists between the natural world and the spiritual world. This passage is hermetically sealed on the natural side. The door is closed. No man can open it. No organic change, no mental energy, no moral effort, no progress of any kind can enable any human being to enter the spiritual world. But as the plant reaches down into the mineral world and touches it with the mystery of life, so the universal mind reaches down into the human mind and endows it with new, strange, wonderful, and even marvelous qualities. All men or women who have ever accomplished anything in the world of industry, commerce, or art have accomplished because of this particular process. Thought is the connecting link between the infinite and the finite, between the universal and the individual. We have seen that there is an impassable barrier between the organic and the inorganic, and that the only way that matter can unfold is to be impregnated with life. As a seed reaches down into the mineral world and begins to unfold and reach out, the dead matter begins to live. A thousand invisible fingers begin to weave a suitable environment for the new arrival. 
And as the law of growth begins to take effect, we see the process continue until the lily finally appears. And even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Even so, a thought is dropped into the invisible substance of the universal mind, that substance from which all things are created. And as it takes root, the law of growth begins to take effect, and we find that conditions and environment, the law is that thought is an active, vital form of dynamic energy, which has the power to correlate with its object and bring it out of the invisible substance from which all things are created into the visible or objective world. This is the law by which and through which all things come into manifestation. It is the master key by which you are admitted into the secret place of the Most High and are given dominion over all things. With an understanding of this law, you may decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. It could not be otherwise if the soul of the universe as we know it is the universal spirit. Then the universe is simply the condition which the universal spirit has made for itself. We are simply individualized spirit and are creating the conditions for our growth in exactly the same way. This creative power depends upon our recognition of the potential power of spirit or mind and must not be confused with evolution. Creation is the calling into existence of that which does not exist in the objective world. Evolution is simply the unfolding of potentialities involved in things which already exist. In taking advantage of the wonderful possibilities opened up to us through the operation of this law, we must remember that we ourselves contribute nothing to its efficacy, as the great teacher said, It is not I that doeth the works, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the work. We must take exactly the same position that we can do nothing to assist in the manifestation. We simply comply with the law, and the all-originating mind will bring about the results. The great error of the present day is the idea that man has to originate the intelligence whereby the infinite can proceed to bring about a specific purpose or result. Nothing of this kind is necessary. The universal mind can be depended upon to find the ways and the means for bringing about any necessary manifestation. We must, however, create the ideal, and this ideal should be perfect. We know that the laws governing electricity have been formulated in such a way that this invisible power can be controlled and used for our benefit and comfort in thousands of ways. We know that messages are carried around the world, that ponderous machinery does its bidding, that it now illuminates practically the whole world. But we know, too, that if we consciously or ignorantly violate its law by touching a live wire when it is not properly insulated, the result is going to be unpleasant and possibly disastrous. A lack of understanding of the laws governing in the indivisible world has the same result, and many are suffering the consequences all of the time. It's been explained that the law of causation depends upon polarity. A circuit must be formed. Now, this circuit cannot be formed unless we operate in harmony with the law. How shall we operate in harmony with the law unless we know what the law is? How shall we know what the law is? It's simple, by study and by observation. We see the law in operation everywhere. All nature testifies to the operation of the law by silently, constantly expressing itself in the law of growth. Where there is growth, there must be life. Where there is life, there must be harmony, so that everything that has life is constantly attracting to itself the conditions and the supply which is necessary for its most complete expression. If your thought is in harmony with the creative principle of nature, it is in tune with the infinite mind, and it will form the circuit. It will not return you to void. 
but it is possible for you to think thoughts that are not in tune with the infinite, and when there is no polarity, the circuit is not formed. What then is the result? What is the result when a dynamo is generating electricity? The circuit is cut off and there is no outlet. The dynamo stops. It's exactly the same with you. If you entertain thoughts which are not in accordance with the infinite and cannot therefore be polarized, there is no circuit. You are isolated. The thoughts cling to you, harass you, worry you, and finally bring about disease and possibly death. The physician may not diagnose the case exactly in this way. He may give it some fancy name, which has been manufactured for the various ills which are the result of wrong thinking. But nevertheless, the cause is just the same. Constructive thought must necessarily be creative, but creative thought must be harmonious, and this eliminates all destructive or competitive thought. Wisdom, strength, courage, and all harmonious conditions are the result of power, and we have seen that all power is from within. Likewise, every lack, limitation, or adverse circumstance is the result of weakness. And weakness is simply absence of power. It comes from nowhere. It is nothing. The remedy, then, is simply to develop power, and this is accomplished in exactly the same manner that all power is developed by exercise. This exercise consists in making an application of your knowledge. Knowledge will not apply itself. You must make the application. Abundance will not come to you out of the sky, neither will it drop into your lap, but a conscious realization of the law of attraction and the intention to bring it into operation for a certain definite and specific purpose, and the will to carry out this purpose will bring about the materialization of your desires by a natural law of transference. If you're in business, it will increase and develop along regular channels. Possibly new or unusual channels of distribution are going to be opened, and when the law becomes fully operative, you will find that the things you seek are seeking you. This week, select a blank space on the wall or any other convenient spot from where you usually sit. Mentally draw a black horizontal line about six inches long and try to see the line as plainly as though it were painted on the wall. Now mentally draw two vertical lines connecting with this horizontal line at either end. Now draw another horizontal line connecting with the two vertical lines. Now you have a square. Try to see the square perfectly. When you can do so, draw a circle within the square. Now place a point in the center of the circle. Now draw the point toward you about 10 inches. Now you have a cone on a square base. You will remember that your work was all in black. Change it to white, to red, to yellow. If you can do this, you're making excellent progress, and you'll soon be enabled to concentrate on any problem you may have in mind. When any object or purpose is clearly held in thought, its precipitation in tangible and visible form is merely a question of time. Remember this, the vision always proceeds and itself determines the realization. Your life is governed by law, by actual immutable principles that never vary. Law is in operation at all times in all places. Fixed laws underlie all human actions. For this reason, men who control giant industries are enabled to determine with absolute precision just what percentage of every hundred thousand people will respond to any given set of conditions. It is well, however, to remember that while every effect is the result of a cause, the effect in turn becomes a cause which creates other effects, which in turn creates still other causes, so that when you put the law of attraction into operation, you must remember that you are starting a train of causation for good, or otherwise which may have endless possibilities. We frequently hear it said, 
a very distressing situation came into my life which could not have been the result of my thought, as I certainly never entertained any thought which could have such a result. We fail to remember that like attracts like in the mental world, and that the thought which we entertain brings to us certain friendships, companionships of a particular kind, and these in turn bring about conditions and environment which in turn are responsible for the conditions of which we complain. Here is part 11. Inductive reasoning is the process of the objective mind by which we compare a number of separate instances with one another until we see the common factor that gives rise to them all. Induction proceeds by a comparison of facts. It is this method of studying nature which has resulted in the discovery of a reign of law which has marked an epoch in human progress. It is the dividing line between superstition and intelligence. It has eliminated the elements of uncertainty and caprice from men's lives and substituted law, reason, and certitude. It is the watchman at the gate that we mentioned in a former lesson. When by virtue of this principle the world to which the senses were accustomed had been revolutionized, when the sun had been arrested in his course, the apparently flat earth had been shaped into a ball and set whirling around him, when the inert matter had been resolved into active elements, and the universe presented itself wherever we directed the telescope and microscope full of force, motion, and life, we are constrained to ask by what possible means the delicate forms of organization in the midst of it are kept in order and repair. Like poles and like forces repel themselves or remain impenetrable to each other, and this cause seems in general sufficient to assign a proper place and distance to stars, men, and forces. As men of different virtues enter into partnership, so do opposite poles attract each other. Elements that have no property in common, like acids and gases, cling to each other in preference, and a general exchange is kept up between the surplus and the demand. As the eye seeks and receives satisfaction from colors complementary to those which are given, so does need, want, and desire, in the largest sense, induce, guide, and determine action. It is our privilege to become conscious of the principle and act in accordance with it. Cuvier sees a tooth belonging to extinct race of animals. This tooth wants a body for the performance of its function, and it defines the peculiar body it stands in need of, with such precision that Cuvier is able to reconstruct the frame of this animal. Perturbations are also observed in the motion of Uranus. Leverrier needs another star at a certain place to keep the solar system in order, and Neptune appears in the place, and hour appointed. The instinctive wants of the animal and the intellectual wants of Cuvier, the wants of nature and of the mind of Leverrier, were alike, and thus the results hear the thoughts of an existence. There is an existence. A well-defined lawful want, therefore, furnishes the reason for the more complex operations of nature. Having recorded correctly the answers furnished by nature and stretched our senses with the growing science over her surface, having joined hands with the levers that move the earth, we become conscious of such a close, varied, and deep contact with the world without, that our wants and purposes become no less identified with the harmonious operations of this vast organization than the life, liberty, and happiness of the citizen is identified with the existence of his government. As the interests of the individual are protected by the arms of the country, added to his own, and his needs may depend upon certain supply in the degree that they are felt more universally and steadily, in the same manner does conscious citizenship in the republic of nature secure us from the annoyances of subordinate agents, 
by alliance with superior powers, and by appeal to the fundamental laws of resistance or inducement offered to mechanical or chemical agents, distribute the labor to be performed between them and man to the best advantage of the inventor. If Plato could have witnessed the pictures executed by the sun with the assistance of the photographer, or a hundred similar illustrations of what man does by induction, he would perhaps have been reminded of the intellectual midwifery of his master, and in his own mind might have arisen the vision of a land where all manual, mechanical labor and repetition is assigned to the power of nature where our wants are satisfied by purely mental operations set in motion by the will, and where the supply is created by the demand. However distant that land may appear, induction has taught men to make strides toward it, and has surrounded him with benefits which are, at the same time, rewards for past fidelity and incentives for more assiduous devotion. It is also an aid in concentrating and strengthening our faculties for the remaining part, giving unerring solution for individual as well as universal problems by the mere operations of mind in the very purest form. Now here we find a method, the spirit of which is, to believe that what is sought has been accomplished in order to accomplish it, a method bequeathed upon us by the same Plato who, outside of this sphere, could never find how the ideas became realities. This conception is also elaborated by Swedenborg in his Doctrine of Correspondences, and still a greater teacher has said, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye will receive them, and ye shall have them. That's from Mark 11, verse 24. The difference of the tenses in this passage is remarkable. We are first to believe that our desire has already been fulfilled. Its accomplishment will then follow. This is a concise direction for making use of the creative power of thought by impressing on the universal subjective mind the particular thing which we desire as an already existing fact. We are thus thinking on the plane of the absolute and eliminating all consideration of conditions or limitations and are planting a seed which, if left undisturbed, will finally germinate into external fruition. To review, inductive reasoning is the process of the objective mind by which we compare a number of separate instances with one another until we see the common factor that gives rise to them all. We see people in every civilized country on the globe securing results by some process which they do not seem to understand themselves and to which they usually attach more or less mystery. Our reason is given to us for the purpose of ascertaining the law by which these results are accomplished. The operation of this thought process is seen in those fortunate natures that possess everything that others must acquire by toil who never have a struggle with conscience because they always act correctly and can never conduct themselves otherwise than with tact, learn everything easily, complete everything they begin with a happy knack, live in eternal harmony with themselves without ever reflecting much what they do or ever experiencing difficulty or toil. The fruit of this thought is, as it were, a gift of the gods, but a gift which few as yet realize, appreciate, or understand. The recognition of the marvelous power which is possessed by the mind under proper conditions, and the fact that this power can be utilized, directed, and made available for the solution of every human problem, is of transcendental importance. All truth is the same, whether stated in modern scientific terms or in the language of apostolic times. There are timid souls who fail to realize that the very completeness of truth requires various statement, that no one human formula will show every side of it. Changing emphasis, new language, novel interpretations, unfamiliar perspectives are not, as some people suppose, signs of departure from truth, but on the contrary, they are evidence that the truth is being 
apprehended in new relations to human needs and is becoming more generally understood. The truth be told to each generation and to every people in new and different terms, so that when the great teacher said, Believe that ye receive, and ye shall receive. Or when Paul said, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Or when modern science tells us that the law of attraction is the law by which thought correlates with its object. Each statement, when subjected to analysis, is found to contain exactly the same truth, the only difference being in the form of presentation. Discover the remarkable journey of Anonymous John. No one likes feeling alone, anxious, or overweight. But John refused to let his circumstances define him. When his weight ballooned to a staggering 600 pounds, he made a choice to take control of his life. He began documenting his journey in his journal, and after shedding his first 103 pounds, he decided to share his story with the world. Through his journal, he offers inspiration and hope to anyone struggling with similar challenges. If you're looking to be inspired and uplifted, the Anonymous John podcast is for you. Join us on this journey of transformation and visit our website, theanonymousjohn.com. We're standing on the threshold of a new era. The time has arrived when man has learned the secrets of mastery, and the way is being prepared for a new social order more wonderful than anything ever heretofore dreamed of. The conflict of modern science with theology, the study of comparative religions, the tremendous power of new social movements, all of these are but clearing the way for the new order. They may have destroyed traditional forms which have become antiquated and important, but nothing of value has been lost. A new faith has been born, a faith which demands a new form of expression, and this faith is taking form in a deep consciousness of power which is being manifested in the present spiritual activity found on every hand. The spirit which sleeps in the mineral, breathes in the vegetable, moves in the animal, and reaches its highest development in man, that's the universal mind, and it behooves us to span the gulf between being and doing, theory and practice, by demonstrating our understanding of the dominion which we've been given. By far the greatest discovery of all the centuries is the power of thought. The importance of this discovery has been a little slow in reaching the general consciousness, but now it has arrived and it's already in every field of research The importance of this greatest of all great discoveries is being demonstrated. You ask, in what does the creative power of thought consist? It consists in creating ideas, and these in turn objectify themselves by appropriating, inventing, observing, discerning, discovering, analyzing, ruling, governing, combining, and applying matter and force. It can do this because it is an intelligent creative power. Thought reaches its loftiest activity when plunged into its own mysterious depth, when it breaks through the narrow compass of self and passes from truth to truth to the region of eternal light, where all which is, was, or ever will be melts into one grand harmony. From this process of self-contemplation comes inspiration, which is creative intelligence, and which is undeniably superior to every element, force, or law of nature, because it can understand, modify, govern, and apply them to its own ends and purposes, and therefore possess them. Wisdom begins with the dawn of reason, and reason is but an understanding of the knowledge and principles whereby we may know the true meaning of things. Wisdom, then, is illuminated reason, and this wisdom leads to humility, for humility is a large part of wisdom. We all know many who have achieved the seemingly impossible, 
who have realized lifelong dreams, who have changed everything, including themselves. We have sometimes marveled at the demonstration of an apparently irresistible power, which seemed to be ever available just when it was most needed. But it is all clear now. All that is required is an understanding of certain definite fundamental principles and their proper application. For your exercise this week, concentrate on the quotation taken from the Bible. Whatsoever things ye desire, when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Notice there is no limitation. Whatsoever things is very definite, and implies that the only limitation which is placed upon us is our ability to think, to be equal to the occasion, to rise to the emergency, to remember that faith is not a shadow, but a substance. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Death is but the natural process whereby all material forms are thrown into the crucible for reproduction in fresh diversity. Part 12 is enclosed herewith. In the fourth paragraph you'll find the following statement. You must first have the knowledge of your power, second the courage to dare, third the faith to do. If you concentrate upon the thoughts given, if you give them your entire attention, you'll find a world of meaning in each sentence, and will attract to yourself other thoughts in harmony with them, and you will soon grasp the full significance of the vital knowledge upon which you are concentrating. Knowledge does not apply itself. We as individuals must make the application, and the application consists in fertilizing the thought with a living purpose. The time and thought which most persons waste in aimless effort would accomplish wonders if properly directed with some special object in view. In order to do this, it is necessary to center your mental force upon a scientific thought and hold it there to the exclusion of all other thoughts. If you've ever looked through the viewfinder of a camera, you found that when the object was not in focus, the impression was indistinct and possibly blurred. But when the proper focus was obtained, the picture was clear and distinct. This illustrates the power of concentration. Unless you can concentrate upon the object which you have in view, you will have but a hazy, indifferent, vague, indistinct, and blurred outline of your ideal, and the results will be in accordance with your mental picture. So now, Part 12. There is no purpose in life that cannot be best accomplished through a scientific understanding of the creative power of thought. This power to think is common to all. Man is because he thinks. Man's power to think is infinite. Consequently, his creative power is unlimited. We know that thought is building for us the thing we think of and actually bringing it nearer. Yet we find it difficult to banish fear, anxiety, or discouragement, all of which are powerful thought forces and which continually send the things we desire further away, so that it's often one step forward and two steps back. The only way to keep from going backward is to keep going forward. Eternal vigilance is the price of success. There are three steps, and each one is absolutely essential. You must first have the knowledge of your power, second, the courage to dare, third, the faith to do. With this as a basis, you can construct an ideal business, an ideal home, ideal friends, and an ideal environment. You're not restricted as to material or cost. Thought is omnipotent and has the power to draw on the infinite bank of primary substance for all that it requires. Infinite resources are, therefore, at your command. But your ideal must be sharp, clear-cut, and definite. To have one ideal today, another tomorrow, and a third next week 
means to scatter your forces and accomplish nothing. Your result will be a meaningless and chaotic combination of wasted material. Unfortunately, this is the result which many are securing, and the cause itself is evident. If a sculptor started out with a piece of marble and a chisel and changed his ideal every 15 minutes, what result could he expect? And why should you expect any different result in molding the greatest and most plastic of all substances, the only real substance? The result of this indecision and negative thought is often found in the loss of material wealth. Supposed independence, which required many years of toil and effort, suddenly disappears. It is often found then that money and property are not independence at all. On the contrary, the only independence is found to be a practical working knowledge of the creative power of thought. This practical working method cannot come to you until you learn that the only real power which you can have is the power to adjust yourself to divine and unchangeable principles. You can't change the infinite, but you can come into an understanding of natural laws. The reward of this understanding is a conscious realization of your ability to adjust your thought faculties with the universal thought which is omnipresent. Your ability to cooperate with this omnipotence will indicate the degree of success with which you meet. The power of thought has many counterfeits, which are more or less fascinating, but the results are harmful instead of helpful. Of course, worry, fear, and all negative thoughts produce a crop after their kind. Those who harbor thoughts of this kind must inevitably reap what they have sown. Again, there are the phenomena seekers who gormandize on the so-called proofs and demonstration obtained at materializing seances. They throw open their metal doors and soak themselves in the most poisonous currents which can be found in the psychic world. They don't seem to understand that it is the ability to become negative, receptive, and passive, and thus drain themselves of all their vital force, which enables them to bring about these vibratory thought forms. There are also the Hindu worshippers who see in the materializing phenomena which are performed by the so-called adepts a source of power, forgetting or never seeming to realize that as soon as the will is withdrawn, the forms wither and the vibratory forces of which they are composed vanish. Telepathy or thought transference has received considerable attention, but as it requires a negative mental state on the part of the receiver, the practice can be harmful. A thought may be sent with the intention of hearing or seeing, but it will bring the penalty attached to the inversion of the principle involved. In many instances, hypnotism is positively dangerous to the subject as well as the operator. No one familiar with the laws governing in the mental world would think of attempting to dominate the will of another, for by so doing he will gradually, but surely, divest himself of his own power. All of these perversions have their temporary satisfaction, and for some a keen fascination. But there is an infinitely greater fascination in a true understanding of the world of power within. A power which increases with use is permanent instead of fleeing, which not only is potent as a remedial agency to bring about the remedy for past error or results of wrong thinking, but it's a prophylactic agency protecting us from all manner and form of danger, and finally is an actual creative force with which we can build new conditions and new environments. The law is that thought will correlate with its object and bring forth in the material world the correspondence of the thing thought or produced in the mental world. We then discern the absolute necessity of saying that every thought has the inherent germ of truth in order that the law of growth will bring into manifestation good, for good alone can confer any permanent power. 
The principle which gives the thought the dynamic power to correlate with its object and therefore to master every adverse human experience is the law of attraction, which is another name for love. This is an eternal and fundamental principle, inherent in all things, in every system of philosophy, in every religion, and in every science. There is no getting away from the law of love. It is feeling that imparts vitality to thought. Feeling is desire, and desire is love. Thought impregnated with love becomes invincible. We find this truth emphasized wherever the power of thought is understood. The universal mind is not only intelligence, but it is substance, and this substance is the attractive force which brings electrons together by the law of attraction so that they form atoms. The atoms, in turn, are brought together by the same law and form molecules. Molecules take objective forms, and so we find that the law of love is the creative force behind every manifestation, not only of atoms, but of worlds, of the universe, of everything which the imagination can form any conception. It's the operation of this marvelous law of attraction, which has caused men in all ages and all times to believe that there must be some personal being who responded to their petitions and their desires, and manipulated events in order to comply with their requirements. It is the combination of thought and love which forms the irresistible force called the law of attraction. All natural laws are irresistible. The law of gravitation or electricity or any other law operates with mathematical exactitude. There is no variation. It is only the channel of distribution which may be imperfect. If a bridge falls, we do not attribute the collapse to any variation of the law of gravitation. If a light fails us, we do not conclude that the laws governing electricity cannot be depended upon, and if the law of attraction seems to be imperfectly demonstrated by an inexperienced or uninformed person, we're not to conclude that the greatest and most infallible law upon which the entire system of creation depends has been suspended. We should rather conclude that a little more understanding of the law is required, for the same reason that a correct solution of a difficult problem in mathematics is not always readily and easily obtained. Things are created in the mental or spiritual world before they appear in the outward act or event by the simple process of governing our thought forces today. We help create the events which will come into our lives in the future, perhaps even tomorrow. Educated desire is the most potent means of bringing into action the law of attraction. Man is so constituted that he must first create the tools or implements by which he gains the power to think. The mind cannot comprehend an entirely new idea until a corresponding vibratory brain cell has been prepared to receive it. This explains why it is so difficult for us to receive or appreciate an entirely new idea. We have no brain cell capable of receiving it. We are therefore incredulous. We do not believe it. If, therefore, you have not been familiar with the omnipotence of the law of attraction and the scientific method by which it can be put into operation, or if you have not been familiar with the unlimited possibilities which it opens to those who are enabled to take advantage of the resources it offers, begin now and create the necessary brain cells which will enable you to comprehend the unlimited powers which may be yours by cooperating with natural law. This is done by concentration or attention. The intention governs the attention. Power comes through repose. It is by concentration that deep thoughts, wise speech, and all forces of high potentiality are accomplished. It is in the silence that you get into touch with the omnipotent power of the subconscious mind, 
from which all power is evolved. He who desires wisdom, power, or permanent success of any kind will find it only within. It is an unfoldment. The unthinking may conclude that the silence is very simple and easily attained, but it should be remembered that only in absolute silence may one come into contact with divinity itself. We may learn of the unchangeable law and open for himself the channels by which persistent practice and concentration lead to perfection. This week go to the same room, take the same chair, the same position as previously. Be sure to relax. Let go, both mentally and physically. Always do this. Never try to do any mental work under pressure. See that there are no tense muscles or nerves, that you are entirely comfortable. Now realize your unity with omnipotence. Get into touch with this power. Come into a deep and vital understanding, appreciation, and realization of the fact that your ability to think is your ability to act upon the universal mind and bring it into manifestation. Realize that it will meet any and every requirement, that you have exactly the same potential ability which any individual ever did have or ever will have, because each is but an expression or manifestation of the one. All are parts of the whole. There is no difference in kind or quality, the only difference being one of degree. Physical science is responsible for the marvelous age of invention in which we're now living. But spiritual science is now setting out on a career whose possibilities that no one can foretell. Spiritual science has previously been the football of the uneducated, the superstitious, the mystical. But men are now interested in definite methods and demonstrated facts only. We have come to know that thinking is a spiritual process, that vision and imagination preceded action and event that the day of the dreamer has come. The following lines by Mr. Herbert Kaufman are interesting in this connection. Quote, They are the architects of greatness. Their vision lies within their souls. They peer beyond the veils and mists of doubt and pierce the walls of unborn time. The belted wheel, the trail of steel, the churning screw are shuttles in the loom on which they weave their magic tapestries. Makers of empires, they have fought for bigger things than crowns and higher seats than thrones. Your homes are set upon the land a dreamer found. The pictures on its walls are visions from a dreamer's soul. They are the choice few, the blazers of the way. Walls crumble and empires fall. The tidal wave sweeps from the sea and tears a fortress from its rocks. The rotting nations drop off from time's bow, and only things the dreamers make live on. Part 13, which follows, tells why the dreams of the dreamer come true. It explains the law of causation by which dreamers, inventors, authors, financiers, and others bring about the realization of their desires. It explains the law by which the thing pictured upon our mind eventually becomes our own. And now Part 13. It has been the tendency, and as might be proved, a necessity for science to seek the explanation of everyday facts by a generalization of those others which are less frequent and form the exception. Thus does the eruption of the volcano manifest the heat which is continually at work in the interior of the earth, and to which the latter owes much of her configuration. Thus does the lightning reveal a subtle power, constantly busy to produce changes in the inorganic world, and as dead languages now seldom heard were once ruling among the nations, so does a giant tooth in Siberia, or a fossil in the depth of the earth, not only bear record of the evolution of past ages, but thereby explains to us the origin of the hills and valleys which we inhabit today. 
In this way, a generalization of facts which are rare, strange, or form the exception has been the magnetic needle guiding to all the discoveries of inductive science. This method is founded upon reason and experience and thereby destroyed superstition, precedent, and conventionality. It is almost 300 years since Lord Bacon recommended this method of study to which the civilized nations owe the greater part of their prosperity and the more valuable part of their knowledge, purging the mind from narrow prejudices, denominated theories, more effectually than by the keenest irony, calling the attention of men from heaven to earth more successfully by surprising experiments than by the most forcible demonstration of their ignorance, educating the inventive faculties more powerfully by the near prospect of useful discoveries thrown open to all than by talk of bringing to light the innate laws of our mind. The method of Bacon has seized the spiritual and aim of the great philosophers of Greece and carried them into effect by the new means of observation which another age offered, thus gradually revealing a wondrous field of knowledge in the infinite space of astronomy, in the microscopic egg of embryology, and the dim age of geology disclosing an order of the pulse which the logic of Aristotle could never have unveiled, and analyzing into formerly unknown elements the material combinations which no dialectic of the scholastics could ever force apart. It has lengthened life, it has mitigated pain, it has extinguished diseases, it has increased the fertility of the soil, it has given new securities to the mariner, it has spanned great rivers with bridges of form unknown to our fathers, it has guided the thunderbolt from heaven to earth, it has lighted up night with the splendor of day, it has extended the range of human vision, it has multiplied the power of the human muscles, it has accelerated motion, it has annihilated distance, it has facilitated intercourse, correspondence, all friendly offices, all dispatch of business, it has enabled men to descend into the depths of the sea, to soar into the air, to penetrate securely into the noxious recesses of the earth. This then is the true nature and scope of induction, but the greater the success which men have achieved in the inductive science, the more does the whole tenor of their teachings and example impress us with the necessity of observing carefully, patiently, accurately, and with all the instruments and resources at our command the individual facts before venturing upon a statement of general laws. To ascertain the bearing of the spark drawn from the electric machine under every variety of circumstance that we may thus be emboldened with Franklin to address in the form of a kite the question to the cloud about the nature of lightning, to assure ourselves of the manner in which bodies fall with the exactness of a Galileo, that with Newton we may dare to ask the moon about the force that fastens it to the earth. In short, by the value we set upon truth, by our hope in a steady and universal progress, not to permit a tyrannical prejudice to neglect or mutilate unwelcome facts, but to rear the superstructure of science upon the broad and unchangeable basis of full attention paid to the most isolated as well as the most frequent phenomena. An ever-increasing material may be collected by observation, but the accumulated facts are of very different value for the explanation of nature, and as we esteem most highly those useful qualities of men which are of the rarest occurrence, so does natural philosophy sift the facts and attach a preeminent importance to that striking class which cannot be accounted for by the usual and daily observation of life. If then we find that certain persons seem to possess unusual power, what are we to conclude? Well, first we may say it's not so, 
which is simply an acknowledgement of our lack of information because every honest investigator admits that there are many strange and previously unaccountable phenomena constantly taking place. Those, however, who become acquainted with the creative power of thought will no longer consider them unaccountable. Second, we may say that they are the result of supernatural interference, but a scientific understanding of natural laws will convince us that there is nothing supernatural. Every phenomenon is the result of an accurate definite cause, and the cause is an immutable law or principle which operates with invariable precision, whether the law is put into operation consciously or unconsciously. Third, we may say that we're on forbidden ground, that there are some things which we just should not know. Well, this objection was used against every advance in human knowledge. Every individual who ever advanced a new idea, whether a Columbus, a Darwin, a Galileo, a Fulton, or an Emerson, was subjected to ridicule or persecution, so that this objection should receive no serious consideration. But on the contrary, we should carefully consider every fact which is brought to our attention. By doing this, we will more readily ascertain the law upon which it is based. It will be found that the creative power of thought will explain every possible condition or experience, whether physical, mental, or spiritual. Thought will bring about conditions in correspondence with the predominant mental attitude. Therefore, if we fear disaster, as fear is a powerful form of thought, disaster will be the certain result of our thinking. It is this form of thought which frequently sweeps away the result of many years of toil and effort. If we think of some form of material wealth, we may secure it. By concentrated thought, the required conditions will be brought about, and the proper effort put forth, which will result in bringing about the circumstances necessary to realize our desires. But we often find that when we secure the things we thought we wanted, they don't have the effect we expected. That is, the satisfaction is only temporary, or possibly is the reverse of exactly what we expected. What then is the proper method of procedure? What are we to think in order to secure what we really desire? What you and I desire, what we all desire, what everyone is seeking is happiness and harmony. If we can truly be happy, we shall have everything the world can give. If we're happy ourselves, we can make others happy. But we cannot be happy unless we have health, strength, congenial friends, pleasant environment, sufficient supply, not only to take care of our necessities, but to provide for those comforts and luxuries to which we are entitled. The old orthodox way of thinking was to be a worm, to be satisfied with our portion, whatever it is. But the modern idea is to know that we are entitled to the best of everything, that the Father and I are one, and that the Father is the universal mind, the Creator, the original substance from which all things proceed. Now, admitting that His is all true in theory, and it has been taught for 2,000 years, and is the essence of every system of philosophy or religion, how are we to make it practical in our lives? How are we to get the actual tangible results here and now? In the first place, we must put our knowledge into practice. Nothing can be accomplished in any other way. The athlete may read books and lessons on physical training all of his life, but unless he begins to give out strength by actual work, he will never receive any strength. He will eventually get exactly what he gives, but he will have to give it first. It's exactly the same with us. We will get exactly what we give, but we shall have to give it first. It will then return to us manyfold, and the giving is simply a mental process, because thoughts are causes and conditions are effects. Therefore, in giving thoughts of courage, inspiration, health, or help of any kind, we're setting causes in motion which will bring about their effect.
Thought is a spiritual activity and is therefore creative. But make no mistake, thought will create nothing unless it is consciously, systematically, and constructively directed. And herein is the difference between idle thinking, which is simply a dissipation of effort, and constructive thinking, which means practically unlimited achievement. We've found that everything we get comes to us by the law of attraction. A happy thought cannot exist in unhappy consciousness. Therefore, the consciousness must change, and as the consciousness changes, all conditions necessary to meet the changed consciousness must gradually change in order to meet the requirements of the new situation. In creating a mental image or an ideal, we are projecting thought into the universal substance from which all things are created. This universal substance is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient. Are we to inform the omniscient as to the proper channel to be used to materialize our demand? Can the finite advise the infinite? This is the cause of failure, of every failure. We recognize the omnipresence of the universal substance, but we fail to appreciate the fact that this substance is not only omnipresent, but it is omnipotent and omniscient, and will consequently set causes in motion concerning which we may be entirely ignorant. We can best conserve our interest by recognizing the infinite power and infinite wisdom of the universal mind and in this way become a channel whereby the infinite can bring about the realization of our desire. This means that recognition brings about realization. Therefore, for your exercise this week, make use of the principle, recognize the fact that you're a part of the whole, and that a part must be the same in kind and quality as the whole. The only difference there can possibly be is in degree. When this tremendous fact begins to permeate your consciousness, when you really come into a realization of the fact that you... Not your body, but the ego, the I, the spirit which thinks is an integral part of the great whole. That is the same in substance, in quality, and kind, that the Creator could create nothing different from Himself. You'll also be able to say, The Father and I are one. And you will come into an understanding of the beauty, the grandeur, the transcendental opportunities which have been placed at your disposal. Increase in me that wisdom which discovers my truest interest. Strengthen my resolution to perform that which wisdom dictates. Benjamin Franklin You have found from your study thus far that thought is a spiritual activity and is therefore endowed with creative power. This does not mean that some thought is creative, but that all thought is creative. This same principle can be brought into operation in a negative way through the process of denial. The conscious and subconscious are but two phases of action in connection with one mind. The relation of the subconscious to the conscious is quite analogous to that existing between a weather vane and the atmosphere. Just as the least pressure of the atmosphere causes an action on the part of the weather vane, so does the least thought entertained by the conscious mind produce within your subconscious mind action in exact proportion to the depth of feeling characterizing the thought and the intensity with which the thought is indulged. It follows, then, that if you deny unsatisfactory conditions, you are withdrawing the creative power of your thought from those conditions. You're cutting them away at the root. You are sapping their vitality. Remember that the law of growth necessarily governs every manifestation in the objective, so that a denial of unsatisfactory conditions will not bring about instant change. A plant will remain visible for some time after its roots have been cut, but it will gradually fade away and eventually disappear. So the withdrawal of your thought from the contemplation of unsatisfactory conditions will gradually but surely terminate these conditions. 
you'll see that this is an exactly opposite course from the one which we would naturally be inclined to adopt. It will therefore have an exactly opposite effect to the one usually secured. Most persons concentrate intently upon unsatisfactory conditions, thereby giving the condition that measure of energy and vitality which is necessary in order to supply a vigorous growth. And now part 14. The universal energy in which all motion, light, heat, and color have their origin does not partake of the limitation of the many effects of which it is the cause, but it is supreme over them all. This universal substance is the source of all power, all wisdom, and all intelligence. To recognize this intelligence is to acquaint yourself with the knowing quality of mind and through it to move upon the universal substance and bring it into harmonious relations in your affairs. This is something that the most learned physical science teacher has not attempted, a field of discovery upon which he has not yet launched. In fact, but few of the materialistic schools have ever caught the first ray of this light. It doesn't seem to have dawned upon them that wisdom is just as much present everywhere as our force and substance. Now some will say, if these principles are true, why are we not demonstrating them? As the fundamental principle is obviously correct, why do we not get proper results? Well, we do. We get results in exact accordance with our understanding of the law and our ability to make the proper application. We secured no results from the laws governing electricity until someone formulated that law and showed us how to apply it. This puts us in an entirely new relation to our environment, opening up possibilities previously undreamed of, and this by an orderly sequence of law which is naturally involved in our new mental attitude. Mind is creative and the principle upon which this law is based is sound and legitimate and is inherent in the nature of things. But this creative power does not originate in the individual, but in the universal, which is the source and fountain of all energy and substance. The individual is simply the channel for the distribution of this energy. The individual is the means by which the universal produces the various combinations which result in the formation of phenomena. We know that scientists have resolved matter into an immense number of molecules. These molecules have been resolved into atoms and the atoms into electrons. The discovery of electrons in high vacuum glass tubes containing fused terminals of hard metal indicates conclusively that these electrons fill all space, that they exist everywhere, and that they are omnipresent. They fill all material bodies and occupy the whole of what we call empty space. This, then, is the universal substance from which all things proceed. Electrons would forever remain electrons unless directed where to go, to be assembled into atoms and molecules, and this director is mind. A number of electrons revolving around a center of force constitutes an atom. Atoms unite in absolutely regular mathematical ratios and form molecules, and these unite with each other to form a multitude of compounds which unite to build the universe. The lightest known atom is hydrogen, and this is 1,700 times heavier than an electron. An atom of mercury is 300,000 times heavier than an electron. Electrons are pure negative electricity, and as they have the same potential velocity as all other cosmic energy, such as heat, light, electricity, and thought, which is 189,380 miles per second, neither time nor space require consideration. The manner in which the velocity of light was ascertained is interesting. The velocity of light was obtained by the Danish astronomer Romer in 1676 by observing the eclipses of Jupiter's moons. When the Earth was nearest to Jupiter, 
The eclipse appeared about eight and one-half minutes too soon for the calculations, and when the Earth was most remote from Jupiter, they were about eight and a half minutes too late. Romer concluded the reason to be that it required 17 minutes for light from the planet to traverse the diameter of the Earth's orbit, which measured the difference of the distance of the Earth from Jupiter. This calculation has since been verified and proves that light travels at about 186,000 feet a second. The electrons manifest in the body as cells and possess mind and intelligence sufficient for them to perform their functions in the human physical anatomy. Every part of the body is composed of cells, some of which operate independently, others in communities. Some are busy building tissue while others are engaged in forming the various secretions that are necessary for the body. Some act as carriers of material. Others are the surgeons whose work it is to repair damage. Others are scavengers carrying off waste. Others are constantly ready to repel invaders or other undesirable intruders of the germ family. Now all these cells are moving for a common purpose and each one is not only a living organism but has sufficient intelligence to enable it to perform its necessary duties. It is also endowed with sufficient intelligence to conserve the energies and perpetuate its own life. It must, therefore, secure sufficient nourishment, and it has been found that it exercises a choice in the selection of such nourishment. Each cell is born, reproduces itself, dies, and is absorbed. The maintenance of health and life itself depends upon the constant regeneration of these cells. It is therefore apparent that there is mind in every atom of the body. This mind is negative mind, and the power of the individual to think makes him positive so that he can control this negative mind. This is the scientific explanation for metaphysical healing and will enable anyone to understand the principle upon which this remarkable phenomenon rests. This negative mind which is contained in every cell of the body has been called the subconscious mind because it acts without our conscious knowledge. We have found that the subconscious mind is responsive to the will of the conscious mind. All things have their origin in mind and appearances are the result of thought so that we see that things in themselves have no origin, permanency, or reality. In mental, as in natural science, experiments are being made, and each discovery lifts man one step higher toward his possible goal. We find that every man is the reflection of the thought he has entertained during his lifetime. This is stamped on his face, his form, his character, his environment. Back of every effect there is cause, and if we follow the trail to its starting point, we shall find the creative principle out of which it grew. Proofs of this are now so complete that this truth is generally accepted. The objective world is controlled by an unseen and heretofore unexplainable power. We have heretofore personalized this power and called it God. We have now, however, learned to look upon it as the permeating essence or principle of all that exists, the infinite or the universal mind. The universal mind, being infinite and omnipotent, has unlimited resources at its command. And when we remember that it is also omnipresent, we cannot escape the conclusion that we must be an expression or manifestation of that mind. A recognition and understanding of the resources of the subconscious mind will indicate that the only difference between the subconscious and the universal is one of degree. They differ only as a drop of water differs from the ocean. They are in the same kind and quality. The difference is one of degree only. Do you... Can you appreciate the value of this all-important fact? Do you realize that a recognition of this tremendous fact places you in touch with omnipotence? The subconscious mind being the connecting link between the universal mind 
and the conscious mind, is it not evident that the conscious mind can consciously suggest thoughts which the subconscious mind will put into action? And as the subconscious is one with the universal, is it not evident then that no limit can be placed upon its activities? A scientific understanding of this principle would explain the wonderful results which are secured through the power of prayer. The results which are secured in this way are not brought about by any special dispensations of providence, but on the contrary, they are the result of the operation of a perfectly natural law. There is therefore nothing either religious or mysterious about it. Yet there are many who are not ready to enter into the discipline necessary to think correctly, even though it is evident that wrong thinking has brought failure. Thought is the only reality. Conditions are but the outward manifestations as the thought changes. All outward or material conditions must change in order to be in harmony with their creator, which is thought. But the thought must be clear-cut, steady, fixed, definite, unchangeable. You cannot take one step forward and two steps backward. Neither can you spend twenty or thirty years of your life building up negative conditions as the result of negative thoughts and then expect to see them all meld away as the result of fifteen or twenty minutes of right thinking. If you enter into the discipline necessary to bring about a radical change in your life, you must do so deliberately after giving the matter careful thought and full consideration, and then you must allow nothing to interfere with your decision. This discipline, this change of thought, this mental attitude, will not only bring you the material things which are necessary for your highest and best welfare, but will bring health and harmonious conditions generally. If you wish harmonious conditions in your life, you must develop an harmonious mental attitude. Your world without will be a reflection of your world within. Now, for your exercise this week, concentrate on harmony. And when I say concentrate, I mean all that that word implies. Concentrate so deeply, so earnestly, that you will be conscious of nothing but harmony. Remember, we learn by doing. Reading these lessons will get you nowhere. It is in the practical application that the value consists. Remember these words by George Matthew Adams. Learn to keep the door shut. Keep out of your mind and out of your world every element that seeks admittance with no definite helpful end in view. Experiments with parasites found on plants indicate that even the lowest order of life is enabled to take advantage of natural law. This experiment was made by Jacques Locke, an M.D., Ph.D., and a member of the Rockefeller Institute. In order to obtain the material, potted rose bushes are brought into a room and placed in front of a closed window. If the plants are allowed to dry out, the aphids, previously wingless, change to winged insects. After the metamorphosis, the animals leave the plants, fly to the window, and then creep upward on the glass. It's evident that these tiny insects found that the plants on which they'd been thriving were dead, and they could therefore secure nothing more to eat and drink from this source. The only method by which they could save themselves from starvation was to grow temporary wings and fly, and that's exactly what they did. Experiments like these indicate the omniscience as well as omnipotence is omnipresent, and that the tiniest living thing can take advantage of it in an emergency. Part 15 will tell you more about the law under which we live. It's going to explain that these laws operate to our advantage, that all conditions and experiences that come to us are for our benefit, that we gain strength in proportion to the effort expended, and that our happiness is best attained through a conscious cooperation with natural law. Part 15. 
The laws under which we live are designed solely for our advantage. These laws are immutable. We cannot escape from their operation. All the great eternal forces act in solemn silence, but it is in our power to place ourselves in harmony with them and thus express a life of comparative peace and happiness. Difficulties, inharmonies, and obstacles indicate that we are either refusing to give out what we no longer need, or we are refusing to accept what we require. Growth is attained through an exchange of the old for the new, of the good for the better. It is a conditional or reciprocal action, for each of us is a complete thought entity, and this completeness makes it possible for us to receive only as we give. We cannot obtain what we lack if we tenaciously cling to what we have. We are able to consciously control our conditions as we come into sense the purpose of what we attract, and are able to extract from each experience only what we require for our further growth. Our ability to do this determines the degree of harmony or happiness that we attain. The ability to appropriate what we require for our growth continually increases as we reach higher planes and broader visions, and the greater our abilities to know what we require, the more certain we shall be to discern its presence, to attract it, and to absorb it. Nothing may reach us except what is necessary for our growth. All conditions and experiences that come to us do so for our benefit. Difficulties and obstacles will continue to come until we absorb their wisdom and gather from them the essentials of further growth. That we reap what we sow is mathematically exact. We gain permanent strength, exactly to the extent of the effort required to overcome difficulties. The inexorable requirements of growth demand that we exert the greatest degree of attraction for what is perfectly in accord with us. Our highest happiness will be best attained through our understanding of and conscious cooperation with natural laws. In order to possess vitality, thought must be impregnated with love. Love is a product of all the emotions. It is therefore essential that the emotions be controlled and guided by the intellect and reason. It's love which imparts vitality to thought and thus enables it to germinate. The law of attraction or the law of love, for they are one and the same, will bring to it the necessary material for its growth and maturity. The first form which thought will find is language, or words. This determines the importance of words. They are the first manifestation of thought, the vessels in which thought is carried. They take hold of the ether and by setting it in motion reproduce the thought to others in the form of sound. Now thought may lead to action of any kind, but whatever the action, it is simply the thought attempting to express itself in visible form. It is evident, therefore, that if we wish desirable conditions, we can afford to entertain only desirable thoughts. This leads to the inevitable conclusion that if we wish to express abundance in our lives, we can afford to think abundance only, and as words are only thoughts taking form, we must be especially careful to use nothing but constructive and harmonious language, which, when finally crystallized into objective forms, will prove to be to our advantage. We can't escape from the picture we incessantly photograph on the mind, and this photography of erroneous conceptions is exactly what is being done by the use of words when we use any form of language which is not identified with our welfare. We manifest more and more life as our thought becomes clarified and takes higher planes. This is obtained with greater facility as we use word pictures that are clearly defined and relieved of the conceptions attached to them on lower planes of thought. It is with words that we must express our thoughts, and if we are to make use of higher forms of truth, we may use only such material 
as has been carefully and intelligently selected with this purpose in view. This wonderful power of clothing thoughts in the form of words is what differentiates man from the rest of the animal kingdom. By the use of the written word, he has been enabled to look back over the centuries and see the stirring scenes by which he has come into his present inheritance. He has been enabled to come into communion with the greatest writers and thinkers of all time, and the combined record which we possess today is therefore the expression of universal thought as it has been seeking to take form in the mind of man. We know that the universal thought has for its goal the creation of form, and we know that the individual thought is likewise forever attempting to express itself in form, and we know that the world is a thought form, and a sentence is a combination of thought forms. Therefore, if we wish our ideal to be beautiful or strong, we must see that the words out of which this temple will eventually be created are exact, that they are put together carefully, because accuracy in building words and sentences is the highest form of architecture in civilization and is a passport to success. Words are thoughts, and they are therefore an invisible and invincible power which will finally objectify themselves in the form that they were given. Words may become mental places that will live forever, or they may become shacks which the first breeze will carry away. They may delight the eye as well as the ear. They may contain all knowledge. In them we find the history of the past as well as the hope of the future. They are living messengers from which every human and superhuman activity is born. The beauty of the word consists in the beauty of the thought. The power of the word consists in the power of the thought. And the power of the thought consists in its vitality. How shall we identify a vital thought? What are its distinguishing characteristics? It must have principle. There is a principle of mathematics, but none of error. There is a principle of health, but none of disease. There is a principle of truth, but none of dishonesty. There is a principle of light, but none of darkness. And there is a principle of abundance, but none of poverty. How shall we know that this is true? Because if we apply the principle of mathematics correctly, we shall be certain of our results. Where there is health, there will be no disease. If we know the truth, we cannot be deceived by error. If we let in light, there can be no darkness, and where there is abundance, there can be no poverty. Now these are self-evident facts, but the all-important truth that a thought containing principle is vital, and therefore contains life, and consequently takes root, and eventually but surely and certainly displaces the negative thoughts, which by their very nature can contain no vitality, is the one which seems to have been overlooked. But this is a fact which will enable you to destroy every manner of discord, lack, and limitation. There can be no question but that he who is wise enough to understand will readily recognize that the creative power of thought places an invincible weapon in his hands and makes him a master of destiny. In the physical world there is a law of compensation which is that the appearance of a given amount of energy anywhere means the disappearance of the same amount somewhere else. So we find that we can get only what we give. If we pledge ourselves to a certain action, we must be prepared to assume the responsibility for development of that action. The subconscious cannot reason. It takes us at our word. We have asked for something. We are now to receive it. We have made our bed, and we are now to lie in it. The die has been cast. The threads will carry out the pattern that we've made. For this reason, insight must be exercised so that the thought which we entertain contains no mental, moral, or physical germ which we do not wish objectified in our lives. 
Insight is a faculty of the mind and whereby we are enabled to examine facts and conditions at long range, a kind of human telescope. It enables us to understand the difficulties as well as the possibilities in any undertaking. Insight enables us to be prepared for the obstacles which we shall meet. We can therefore overcome them before they have any opportunity of causing difficulty. Insight enables us to plan to advantage and turn our thought and attention in the right direction instead of into channels which can yield no possible return. Insight is therefore absolutely essential for the development of any great achievement, but with it we may enter, explore, and possess any mental field. Insight is a product of the world within and is developed in the silence by concentration. For your exercise this week, concentrate on insight. Take your accustomed position and focus the thought on the fact that to have a knowledge of the creative power of thought does not mean to possess the art of thinking. Let the thought dwell on the fact that knowledge does not apply itself, that our actions are not governed by knowledge, but by custom, precedent, and habit. The only way we can get ourselves to apply knowledge is by a determined conscious effort. Call to mind the fact that knowledge unused passes from the mind, that the value of the information is in the application of the principle. Continue this line of thought until you gain sufficient insight to formulate a definite program for applying this principle to your own particular problem. The following is a thought by Horatio Bonar. Think truly, and thy thoughts shall the world's famine feed. Speak truly, and each word of thine shall be a fruitful seed. Live truly, and thy life shall be a great and noble creed. The vibratory activities of the planetary universe are governed by a law of periodicity. Everything that lives has periods of birth, growth, fruitage, and decline. These periods are governed by the septimal law. The law of sevens governs the days of the week, the phases of the moon, the harmonies of sound, light, heat, electricity, magnetism, and atomic structure. It governs the life of individuals and of nations, and it dominates the activities of the commercial world. Life is growth, and growth is change. Each seven years period takes us into a new cycle. The first seven years is the period of infancy. The next seven, the period of childhood, representing the beginning of individual responsibility. The next seven represents the period of adolescence. The fourth period marks the attainment of full growth. The fifth period is the constructive period, when men begin to acquire property, possessions, a home, and a family. The next, from 35 to 42, is a period of reactions and changes, and this in turn is followed by a period of reconstruction, adjustment, and recuperation, so as to be ready for a new cycle of sevens beginning with the fiftieth year. There are many who think that the world is just about to pass out of the sixth period, that it will soon enter into the seventh period, the period of readjustment, reconstruction, and harmony, the period which is frequently referred to as the millennium. Those familiar with these cycles will not be disturbed when things seem to go wrong, but can apply the principle outlined in these lessons with the full assurance that a higher law will invariably control all other laws, and that through an understanding and conscious operation of spiritual laws, we can convert every seeming difficulty into a blessing. So here's part 16. Wealth is a product of labor. Capital is an effect, not a cause. A servant, not a master. A means, not an end. The most commonly accepted definition of wealth 
is that it consists of all useful and agreeable things which possess exchange value. It is this exchange value which is the predominant characteristic of wealth. When we consider the small addition made by wealth to the happiness of the possessor, we find that the true value consists not in its utility, but in its exchange. This exchange value makes it a medium for securing the things of real value whereby our ideals may be realized. Wealth should then never be desired as an end, but simply as a means of accomplishing an end. Success is contingent upon a higher ideal than the mere accumulation of riches, and he who aspires to such success must formulate an ideal for which he is willing to strive. With such an ideal in mind, the ways and means can and will be provided, but the mistake must not be made of substituting the means for the end. There must be a definite fixed purpose, an ideal. Prentice Mulford said, The man of success is the man possessed of the greatest spiritual understanding, and every great fortune comes of superior and truly spiritual power. Unfortunately, there are those who fail to recognize this power. They forget that Andrew Carnegie's mother had to help support the family when they came to America, that Harriman's father was a poor clergyman with a salary of only $200 a year, that Sir Thomas Lipton started with only 25 cents. These men had no other power to depend upon, but it still did not fail them. The power to create depends entirely upon spiritual power. There are three steps, idealization, visualization, and materialization. Every captain of industry depends upon this power exclusively. In an article in Everybody's Magazine, Henry M. Flagler, the standard oil multimillionaire, admitted that the secret of his success was his power to see a thing in its completeness. The following conversation with the reporter shows his power of idealization, concentration, and visualization, all of which are spiritual powers. Did you actually vision to yourself the whole thing? I mean, did you or could you really close your eyes and see the tracks and the trains running and hear the whistles? Did you go as far as that? Yes. How clearly? Very clearly. Here we have a vision of the law. We see cause and effect. We see that thought necessarily precedes and determines action. If we are wise, we shall come into a realization of the tremendous fact that no arbitrary condition can exist for a moment and that human experience is the result of an orderly and harmonious sequence. The successful businessman is far more often than not an idealist and is every striving for higher and higher standards. The subtle forces of thought as they crystallize in our daily moods is what constitutes life. Thought is the plastic material with which we build images of our growing conception of life. Use determines as existence. As in all other things, our ability to recognize it and use it properly is the necessary condition for attainment. Premature wealth is but the forerunner of humiliation and disaster, because we can't permanently retain anything which we do not merit or which we have not earned. The conditions with which we meet in the world without correspond to the conditions which we find in the world within. This is brought about by the law of attraction. How then shall we determine what it is to enter into the world within? Whatever enters the mind through the senses or the objective mind will impress the mind and result in a mental image which will become a pattern for the creative energies. These experiences are largely the result of environment, chance, past thinking, and other forms of negative thought, and they must be subjected to careful analysis before being entertained. On the other hand, we can form our own mental images through our own interior processes of thought, regardless of the thoughts of others, 
regardless of exterior conditions, regardless of environment of every kind, and it is by the exercise of this power that we can control our own destiny, body, mind, and soul. It is by the exercise of this power that we take our fate out of the hands of chance and consciously make for ourselves the experiences which we desire. Because when we consciously realize a condition, that condition will eventually manifest in our lives. It is therefore evident that in the last analysis, thinking is the one great cause in life. Therefore, to control thought is to control circumstances, conditions, environment, and destiny. How then are we to control thought? What's the process? To think is to create a thought, but the result of the thought will depend upon its form, its quality, and its vitality. The form will depend upon the mental images from which it emanates. This will depend upon the depth of the impression, the predominance of the idea, and the clarity of the vision, plus the boldness of the image. The quality depends upon its substance, and this depends upon the material of which the mind is composed. If this material has been woven from thoughts of vigor, strength, courage, and determination, the thought will possess these qualities. And finally, the vitality depends upon the feeling with which the thought is impregnated. If the thought is constructive, it will possess vitality. It will have life. It will grow, develop, expand. It will be creative. It will attract to itself everything necessary for its complete development. If the thought is destructive, it will have within itself the germ of its own dissolution. It will die. But in the process of dying, it will bring sickness, disease, and every other form of discord. This we call evil, and when we bring it upon ourselves, some of us are disposed to attribute our differences to a supreme being. But this supreme being is simply mind in equilibrium. It is neither good nor bad. It simply is. Our ability to differentiate it into form is our ability to manifest good or evil. Good and evil, therefore, are not entities. They are simply words which we use to indicate the result of our actions. And these actions are, in turn, predetermined by the character of our thought. If our thought is constructive and harmonious, we manifest good. If it is destructive and discordant, well, then we manifest evil. If you desire to visualize a different environment, the process is simply to hold the ideal in mind until your vision has been made real. Give no thought to persons, places, or things. These have no places in the absolute. The environment you desire will contain everything necessary. The right persons and the right things will come at the right time and in the right place. It is sometimes not plain how character, ability, attainment, achievement, environment, and destiny can be controlled through the power of visualization, but this is an exact scientific fact. You will readily see that what we think determines the quality of mind and that the quality of mind in turn determines our ability and mental capacity, and you can readily understand that the improvement in our ability will naturally be followed by increase in attainment and a greater control of circumstances. It will thus be seen that natural laws work in a perfectly natural and harmonious manner. Everything seems to just happen. If you want any evidence of this fact, simply compare results of your efforts in your own life, when your actions were prompted by high ideals, and when you had a selfish or ulterior motive in mind. You'll need no further evidence. If you wish to bring about the realization of any desire, Form a mental picture of success in your mind by consciously visualizing your desire. In this way, you'll be compelling success. You will be externalizing it in your life by scientific methods. 
We can only see what already exists in the objective world, but what we visualize already exists in the spiritual world. And this visualization is a substantial token of what will one day appear in the objective world if we are but faithful to our ideal. The reason for this is not difficult. Visualization is a form of imagination. This process of thinking forms impressions on the mind, and these impressions in turn form concepts and ideals, and they in turn are the plans from which the master architect will weave the future. The psychologists have come to the conclusion that there is but one sense, the sense of feeling, and that all other senses are but modifications of this one sense. This being true, we know why feeling is the very fountainhead of power, why the emotions so easily overcome the intellect, and why we must put feeling into our thought if we wish results. Thought and feeling is the irresistible combination. Visualization must, of course, be directed by the will. We are to visualize exactly what we want. We must be careful not to let the imagination run wild. Imagination is a good servant but a poor master, and unless it is controlled, it may easily lead us into all kinds of speculations and conclusions which have no basis or foundation of fact whatever. Every kind of plausible opinion is liable to be accepted without any analytical examination, and the inevitable result is mental chaos. We must therefore construct only such mental images as are known to be scientifically true. Subject every idea to a searching analysis and accept nothing which is not scientifically exact. When you do this, you will attempt nothing but what you know. You can carry that out, and success will crown your efforts. This is what businessmen call farsightedness. It is much the same as insight and is one of the great secrets of success in all important undertakings. For your exercise this week, try to bring yourself to a realization of the important fact that harmony and happiness are states of consciousness, and don't depend upon the possession of things. That things are effects and come as a consequence of correct mental states, so that if we desire material possession of any kind, our chief concern should be to acquire the mental attitude which will bring about the result desired. This mental attitude is brought about by a realization of our spiritual nature and our unity with the universal mind, which is the substance of all things. This realization will bring about everything which is necessary for our complete enjoyment. This is scientific or correct thinking. When we succeed in bringing about this mental attitude, it is comparatively easy to realize our desire as an already accomplished fact. When we can do this, we shall have found the truth which makes us free from every lack or limitation of any kind. H.W. Beecher said, A man might frame and let loose a star to roll in its orbit, and yet not have done so memorable a thing before God as he who lets a golden orb thought to roll through the generations of time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Charles Honnell. If you're enjoying the content and would like to help the podcast grow, you can support us by subscribing or making a small donation through the link in the show notes. As a subscriber, you will also gain access to exclusive episodes. Thank you for being a member of the Resilient Mind community.